Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Kia ora koto, ko tipine moe toku ingwa no autotahi ao. I hope everybody's enjoying Maori Language Week, which is on this week. I'm really glad you could join me because we get the chance to speak with Ruben Bale today. And he's a co-founder and the managing director of Smudge, which is developing a number of different apps. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Ruben. So then the, the new management came in and I remember the guy, he came in and had like a meeting with me. He's like, well, we want to move to Auckland. We want to pay you this much to come do this job. And he thought it was like a big number that he was offering me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm making more than that doing these apps I'm doing like on the right. side they're just like these farm sounds and these other things so yeah. I was like well I'm not I'm having, and I'm having way more fun as well like I'm having fun doing this and I'm making money doing it so right. um, it wasn't that it was so much as a business um, but that was like one mo- moment there so Re- inside because he, he's He's offering you this amazing opportunity to mm. come to the big city yeah. and we're going to pay you a lot more and yeah. you're going to have this new job. Yeah. And inside, you're just kind of smiling, thinking, well, actually. Funnily enough, I was just on a casual contract as well. Right. So I just, I actually just walked out that day and I was, I was just done. Okay. Just like, I don't, like, if that's, like if that's the value that I'm going to be adding, then I'm, I don't really need to, I don't need to yeah. be here. Like I'm not, um, I wasn't on a just, permanent contract. Yeah. Or, it was more of a hobby for me, right? Sounds yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I know you can enjoy this conversation because we talk about a wide range of topics, and those are the podcast interviews that I love the best. So as well as talking about the business that Ruben is involved in, we also go on this major tangent talking about his love of music and his training to be a concert pianist. I know you're going to enjoy it. And if you do like it, then consider leaving a rating or review. If you enjoy this episode, then you might want to check out some of the dozens and dozens of other interviews that are part of this series, because this is the 59th episode and many of them also have a tech focus. For example, I've spoken with Rob Lindemann from the Hit Lab about VR and AR, as well as David Carter about Canterbury Tech and the industry here in Christchurch. And for those of you who are at the Canterbury Tech Summit this week, it was great to connect with many of you because I was able to put up a stand at the Community Zone, and that was really fun. So thanks to Nina, David, Helen, and all those on the committee who were involved in putting on that great event. Now, let's dive into this interview with Ruben. So it's a pleasure to welcome Ruben Bale, who's the co-founder and managing director of Smudge. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. It's, um, it's great to have you because I think we're going to have a fascinating conversation about many different topics. And I love knowing you know, that we're going to talk about your current um, endeavors, but also just learning a bit about your background and history. So what I like to do with interviews is just set the scene and um, learn a little bit about people and where they're from. So if we could start there. So I'm a Kiwi. I've, uh, I feel like I wasn't born in Christchurch, but I feel like I was because everyone else in my family was. It was my parents were living in New Plymouth for a couple of years when mm-hmm. I was actually born. So I was born in the North Island. But I think I moved here when I was about six or eight weeks old. So I feel very much like a South Islander and a Cantabrian. Um, and... You know, grew up in, in Christchurch. Spent a little bit of time in Hammer Springs, so my parents uh, owned a lodge there, and we, you know, we started my uh, primary school years there. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, when we moved on from there, came back to Christchurch uh, and went to ended up being a cathedral chorister. So had a bit of a background in, in the cathedral, um, which was interesting. And uh, through that sort of avenue. Um, I had a bit of music experience and a bit of interest in computers and ended up going to Christ College on a music scholarship with uh, playing the piano and kept going through there and ended up leaving after sixth form, going to Canterbury University here and uh, studying computer science and music at the same time. Mm. Uh, so let's just um, back up a little bit because I'm curious about the early days you know, with Hamner Springs. Like, How old were you when you were there and when did you leave? I think it was there between about... Uh, between about four so my brother was born before we went there so mm-hmm. I, would, I would have been about four to maybe six or seven years old something like that right um my parents owned the business there and worked full-time in it and so but it's been a lot of time you know it was a, a, not inside Hamner springs it was outside and so spent a lot of time like on a okay. farm and you know just being a child with with my brother and my sister and, and yeah that's life. a pretty beautiful place to spend some of your childhood though Absolutely, incredibly fond memories of, of living there. That's yeah. what, um, 
great space to to grow up yeah and is it somewhere you go back to you know remembering the early days or anytime that i've been back i feel like it just changes so much it's become so much more commercial like when we were there i remember um we used to go and have swimming lessons in the pool and it was like you knew every single person right. in Hanmer and the you know the pool wasn't even as commercial as it was now you just like walked in didn't even have you know the gates and stuff it was like oh hi Ruben come in and right come on in yeah <laughs> and so um yeah it was, it was quite a different experience than than what it is now mm-hmm. yeah and you mentioned music and you know the um playing the piano and things is that something that you'd always done since early childhood as well or yeah I think so my um in my family background, so my mum had been a music teacher and a song that she had encouraged and developed, uh, you know, from an early age. So we didn't have music lessons and mm. and uh, learnt some of those skills. Um, but it's been something that, um, you know, I really still enjoy today. Like have, um, last week, I actually went and bought a new keyboard because I've been moving some houses and I didn't really want to have another piano because I was getting a little bit sick of having a mm. piano tuner coming all the time and thought finally okay i'm gonna i'm gonna give a keyboard a go for a little bit and uh see how i get on with it okay <laughs> what is it that you enjoy about music oh that's a great question there's there's a whole bunch of different things i enjoy about it i mean i enjoy just from a level of sitting down and just listening to the sounds that come out of an instrument mm. like whatever instrument it is but like say a piano like sitting in front of a you know nine foot grand piano and just hearing the different timbres and sounds that like come and the resonance of the different things and not just hearing them but feeling them in your body because you have the vibrations of the strings and so like it's not just a um like a hearing sensation but it's also a Mm. feeling and so there's a there's something that's very connective about that um and right through to then you know going along and enjoying a live concert where someone's performing and Mm. again that same sort of experience where it's um you know, hearing the rhythm and being able to like think about that and process the intellectual side of that, but also the, just the feeling of it. I think I think there's something about music where you it connects all the different parts of your body in some way. Mm. Um, like if you think about all your different senses, they're all involved at some level. Like I think even thinking about an instrument, how tactile it is, and mm-hmm. the fact that I haven't actually thought about this in that much detail, but it probably is that that you get the tactile sense, you get the um, sense of feeling through your actual body through the vibrations through the sense of your ears um eyes probably not so much but yeah <laughs> yeah but i get the sense i get from you is that it's sort of all part of you you know the mm. the experience in other mm. words it's not just the ears it's not just putting on a cd and mm. listening it's actually the um the experience of the person who's playing and mm. the and the sounds is that right yeah absolutely yeah 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 because yeah. yeah, as somebody who would be someone who's who wishes they were you know really good at playing guitar or piano I, I think um there's kind of a gulf between <laughs> my desire and my actual ability um having grown up with it um is that something that i guess you it's always just been a part of you that you could i think um i almost feel like any area that you work in like i find this with both work and with um a personal life and with you know any hobbies that you have mm. like anything that you really try to work at you can never really be an expert because you find out there's so much more that you can do. And like the more you dig into something, the more deep you get, you're like, oh my goodness, I can spend like four weeks just working on this one like phrase or like how to make this sound really the way I want it to sound or go into. And so I think it's one of those things where if you have a little amount of knowledge, then someone else can seem like they're so much better. But then once you have more knowledge, you know where to look. And so, and I think it's the same with food with, um, you know, if like, you know, what sort of food you like and you have a particular area, but then there's so many different styles and people have got so much like yeah i think it's applicable to any part of life yeah that's true isn't it because um you can you can fool a lot of people with a little bit of knowledge but the people who really know are gonna be able to tell <laughs> aren't they? that's exactly it so for me like if i if i play the piano for someone yeah um i kind of have you have most people look and be like oh wow that's really amazing it sounds really great but then mm you always sort of have this um you know the imposter syndrome of of going oh but like if i heard someone else uh playing like that i'd be like because you have the knowledge and not as much ability as knowledge as you you have Mm. then you're like oh but you critique yourself right and as opposed to say for example um 
uh, like if I go and get a bass guitar and just like dabble on that, I can like play some stuff and it's kind of fun because I don't have enough knowledge to know like how bad I am. Mm-hmm. So it's like even though I know I'm bad, I don't know how bad I am. Whereas on the piano, because I've studied it in so much more detail, then it's like, you know, you're like, oh, but I could do that like this and I could do yeah. this. like So yeah. it makes it. But then yeah. um, taking the reverse of all this, you know, not knowing what you don't know is sometimes a good thing, isn't it? Totally. As an entrepreneur. Yeah. Because if you knew how bad you were <laughs> yeah. at whatever it is, you probably would never even start that's, some of these ventures. That's exactly it. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. Because I think, yeah, it is. It's, it's um, yeah, sometimes you think you know, but you don't. <laughs> I think there's, there's a real balance between going and studying and learning everything you can about a topic, right? Mm. It's like it's like being, you know, like say playing sport, or like being a watching sport. Right. right. You could know everything about all the players on the field, but have never ever picked up a ball. Yeah. Right. And yeah. never actually like used and, and done a pass. And you might be critiquing, be like, oh you should do it this way, do it this way. Yeah. And as opposed to doing um, you know, actually have played the game. Right. And you might not know any of the theoretical knowledge. You might not be able to say, well this player weighs this much and like the scrum is like this weights between them and this is what's going to happen. You just might have the physical like understanding of like how to do it mm. which is where the um the, the criticism comes out isn't it like mm. somebody in the armchair looking at the tv saying you know the all blacks that they, they shouldn't have kicked there they mm. really should have tried getting further mm. um it's easy to be a critic mm. <laughs> i think one of the things i do do like about music though is the is, is unlike a sport you don't have like a winner or a loser you don't get to the end of a thing and you're like hey mm. someone won and someone lost it's like there's more um more of like a trying to get towards a goal and trying to um, mm. do something so what else do you mean by that what unpack that for us like at the end of a concert or something well i think um there's no there's no metric that you can say you won or you lost there's no like whereas you can point to a score and say this team won or they mm. lost but mm. it's like it's it's so it's like you can put a number around something and put something hard against something that's not based on soft skills mm-hmm. and so i feel like you don't really have that in the music world the same yeah um you do through you know the exam system and like the way that you know you have to be assessed for music but mm-hmm. coming up with a number to say how someone played a piece or wrote a piece is just yeah <laughs> doesn't if make you interview people coming out of the concert it's not like there was a score, Gave you right? Sixty-seven point like, five. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like music is has has been and still is a big part of your life in terms of what you know what you feel. Mm. Um, so that was evident right through high school as well. It sounds like was that a big part of you? Yeah, definitely. I um, I I don't, don't remember a whole lot about high school. Right now <laughs> I sort of I kind of a little bit of a blur. In some ways, mm. but, um, did you know what you wanted to do at that? Absolutely point? no idea. I still don't. I don't know if I know what I want to do yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think you still challenge yourself on uh, on your like. Still um, working that out. Yeah. 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 But obviously, um, you did go on and do some further study and things. So um, talk us through those sorts of choices. How did you end up studying what you studied? Was it music at university? Yeah. So I, I can. That one's quite easy actually. So. After, um, so when I was at school, like I did, there's some assessments that you can do in music called um, like letters. So you can do ABRSM and LTCL. So I did at school, I'd done um, ATCL and ABRSM. And then after school, I started looking at the courses that I could do in seventh form. And mm-hmm. they didn't really have the courses that I was interested in continuing. Um, and so rather than doing that, I thought, actually, I wasn't, I'll go to university and start doing computer science because I'm really interested in the technology space but mm-hmm. I wasn't interested in like digital so seventh form at the time sorry I was year 13 mm-hmm. it was the first year of year 13 um first year of NCA and they didn't this digital subjects and were like how to use Microsoft Word how to use right. Photoshop and like I'd already done all that kind of stuff so I didn't really want to be assessed and learn how to do that mm-hmm. and so I was more interested in going and learning the hard skills about computer work and computer software so mm-hmm. I thought it was natural to go to university and study that because those courses were there um and then at the same time I thought well because that doesn't take up a huge amount of my time. I already spent, you know, doing music. I mean, for music, for context, like to do to do that kind of music at that level at school, I was getting up at five or six each morning and practicing for an hour and a half each wow. day and probably practicing, you know, at night again yeah. a little bit as well. It's like, it's a, it's a proper thing. Um, it takes <laughs> a bit of time. It wasn't just 20 minutes when you got home from school. <laughs> no, no, it's like you'd have to, have to do quite a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so then when I... Um, 
when I went to university, it was then natural to say, well, actually keep doing my piano study, but I did that outside of, um, actually, so this was the reason I didn't do engineering, because I was thinking, do I do computer science or do engineering? Mm. And engineering is a full-time course where you don't get to have the flexibility. My personality, I much prefer, the thing I didn't like about school and wanted to leave school was because it's like you have to go to this class and then this class and then do this. Mm-hmm. didn't really suit me that well. Um, whereas opposed to being able to go to university computer science, there's three or four courses that you can do and they have just different times that you go and then your day is a lot more free and you have a lot mm. more time to self-study and work things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then also doing that, I could make up my own timetable. So I did some music courses and some computer science courses and then I just kept learning the piano from the same piano teacher I've been doing. And so I did LTCL, which is the same sort of level as doing first year university for piano performance Mm -hmm. and so I wasn't actually going to go to university and study classical piano because that seems like a kind of crazy thing to do anyway like in terms of a career choice um not a lot of people are going to be professional concert pianists right (laughs) Um, and so I but there's a piano teacher that came um, from Hungary so in Hungary they have this thing called the List Academy and they have uh, 10 piano teachers there. And this guy was there as Peter Naj. And so he's the head piano teacher at um, the List Academy. And so he came to New Zealand to come and live here and start teaching. So he was the one who was actually taking the classes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought for the rather than the opportunity to go and learn from this piano teacher from going and doing the university course just made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was why I ended up going to university and doing classical piano. Yeah. It was just a chance encounter that this piano teacher... Wow was coming out from the List Academy and opportunity to go and learn yeah. with them. So it just happened to be that he was coming and you wanted to start studying then and it yeah. coalesced. Yeah. It's funny in life, isn't it, how sometimes it's so unpredictable. You mm. know, like two years earlier or later, maybe it would have been different, right? Mm. It's, uh, it's the little paths that open up. Totally. You've got to embrace them. Absolutely. So we've touched on computers now. Um, is that something that you'd enjoyed growing up as well? Because I think we're going to weave that into technology, which is where we're headed next. Um, or, yeah, it, you mentioned that you didn't you enjoyed it or wanted to study it more. Yeah, so it was something that I'd always just had a natural um, interest in and a natural, I think just because there's so much stuff you could do with it because a computer is such a general purpose kind of tool mm-hmm. that it's like you can do so many different things. Like you can do music stuff with it. You can do, um, you know, uh, solve problems with them. You can mm-hmm. like pretty much any spectrum, anything that I almost can't think of actually anything today that you'd want to do or that you could do that's not going to be beneficial to have a computer for, mm-hmm. right? And by that, I mean, you know, something, this recording device is a computer, right? I'll mm-hmm. classify that in the same mm-hmm. same category. And um, and so I'd always been interested in them. And I, it was actually through, um, I got interested in Apple computers at quite an early age. So mm-hmm. uh, it was around when the iMac first started coming out, so like 1999. Okay. And it was really, really unpopular mm-hmm. to be interested in Apple then, like right. so, so unpopular. Because it had been popular, right? And then it had gone down a bit, and then this was the resurgence. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. they came out with some innovative designs and colors. And, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. But there were some metrics, like they were slower from like a processor in the way that they work because they happened to be done using PowerPC, like a different CPU mm. architecture than what... Um, PCs were using mm-hmm. and so but just through some chance encounters um, I there's, there's an old computer shop called Magnum Mac and oh, yeah. they were the Apple reseller and so my dad was actually doing some work there and so he then ended up with an iMac and so then we started I started using an iMac through that and started learning about Apple's philosophy and where they sat from like a design perspective and bringing all those things together mm-hmm. and so that was really my introduction to it and I got into it quite early and I always remember um because it was like you're like the one in the 100 people that actually had a Mac, mm-hmm. you're kind of like everyone would always um, like almost gravitate towards just arguing like what sort of computer you had and all that kind of stuff. And so I, le- I think I learned quite quickly through high school and through that time where people would actually care that actually I don't really care what sort of computer, what device or any of that stuff you had, but it was what you did with it and what you actually were using the tool to do. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, rather than arguing over which drill or which hammer or like which right. piano you're using, whatever it is, right? It's like, well, what are you doing with that tool as opposed to like, hey, here's just a tool that, you know, I argue about the choice of tool for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. And I found, yeah, there was a lot of people interested in computers that, that I found that those were the discussions around. So it's yeah, like a speeds and feeds kind of thing rather yeah. than... Hey, this is what I did with this tool. Yeah. So like here's here's a hammer that's mm. got a red 
um, grip on it. Mm. And here's one that's got a blue grip. Mm. Which one is better? Mm. But actually, I'm going to use the hammer to go build a house yeah. that's for this purpose. Exactly. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're like, the other one's just sitting in my yeah. sitting somewhere because I like the object. Mm. And it's like, there's a, there's a vast difference between... Um, yeah, yep. liking an object for what it is, which is still interesting. But mm. um, and my interest personally was more on the side of like, hey, what can I do with this thing? I see. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in what you're doing now, because that's where we're headed, I think. Yeah. So you're at university and you're studying. You've got computers, um, you know, study there, computer science mm. and piano. Mm. Um, was there a point with the piano where you, yeah, a fork in the road moment where you thought I need to, head down the computer um, road or or has it always stayed dual or? no there's definitely definitely a very much a fork in the road so mm. i remember um it was a very sad day actually <laughs> just thinking about it now right um but I, I got to a point so i went i did um so peter actually uh taught for about two years mm. here and then he ended up going back to hungary partly because there's a bit of a cultural mismatch between what the university expected of a piano teacher and what a performer because he's still performing mm. and so like and what a performer would expect to be able to go and do so there's a little right. bit of a mismatch there yeah um and so then we actually ended up having uh this lady who came down and taught us from um from uh from Wellington so she came down every single week she flew down and I had like the first lesson on Monday morning so I biked to university going to have my lesson and it was like the hardest year that I had of doing mm. music because I'd never understand you know one week I'd do no practice because I was so demotivated mm. and she'd be really happy and she'd be like you're doing so well like this is awesome and then another week right. I would be practicing really hard and trying to understand what she's getting me to do and then I would never I would um yeah, I'd, I'd have a terrible, terrible lesson because it's like, yeah. And so I, it was a really confusing year for me. Mm. Um, but I kept at it after that. And I, I'd, I'd always really wanted to, I never quite got this goal. So it's still actually, still actually a goal that sits, sits deep down in me somewhere. Mm-hmm. But I always really wanted to be able to play a concerto with an orchestra. And so one of the ways that you can do that in New Zealand is there's this um, national concerto competition. So they alternate between different years. So one year they do piano and then every other year they do a different orchestra instrument. So you can do a flute or a violin or a cello, any other instrument that there's a concerto written for. And so the year after I finished university, there was the piano um, version of of that uh, concerto competition. Mm -hmm. And so Morris Till... Um, was another piano teacher and so I went to Morris Till and started learning from him and worked on a concerto with him um, and it was it was a very interesting experience because I in terms of like performance like you don't get that many times to perform compared to um, like practicing I see and yeah. and so I got to a point where I think it, I realized and, and Morris said as much to me but um that you know, this wasn't going to be. I wasn't. I wasn't going to be a professional pianist, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. as a professional classical pianist, that was just like not a path. And so, I got to that point that year where I was like, actually, this is not mm-hmm. a future career path. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which I'm not actually particularly sad about, but it was just. Mm-hmm. I remember that day where I was like, kind of real. Like there was like, hey. So there actually, was an actual moment that that there was a that, you there know, was like an actual, you're sitting somewhere, you're talking to someone, and you realize this is. It was this a conversation a- pretty much after doing the concerto competition. Mm-hmm. Morris came and talked to me, and he's like, "You're not cut out for this, right?" Yeah, and and there was and there was a very fair like I, I think it was a fair assessment. I think it was, um, yeah. you know, sometimes I think people can encourage people in areas that they're not actually going to succeed and be mm-hmm. a professional at. Mm-hmm. And I think actually probably the is it was um, it was said from a place of love and from a place of kindness, right. not from a not from a an attack or like it like I understood where it was coming from. Yeah, and I, it would have I, been worse in a way if he'd come and said, "Oh, try harder, maybe ex- next year, exactly, or the next year, ex- or the next year, <laughs> exactly." <Whereas laughs> and kind of led you down the road. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah. Um, so what I'd love to do is talk about um, Smudge and what you're doing now. But can you just set the scene in terms of um, your university days? And because I think it has its origins even back at that point, doesn't it? Um, can yes. you just set the scene of what you were doing at that time and then maybe guide us through to how it developed into the business that you're now, um, you know, full time and, mm. and working on? So I'd actually then by that time I'd finished my computer degree mm-hmm. and the classical piano degree. 
and I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So, well, you still don't know today, right? I still don't know today, <laughs> so I'm still working. I'm still, I'm still just like following the, <laughs> following the treadmill wherever it's going, and um, and so I started actually doing a jazz piano degree. So oh, okay. I went to, to CPIT and started doing that. Um, and it was through that year, you know, I had a bit, bit of time, like it wasn't as much of a workload as doing um, both classical. Again, not that I'm saying I was particularly excelling in any of the classes. I was probably, you know, reasonably sort of middle of the playing field. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, I think as well, like people, it comes as that knowledge thing, like because I could do like virtuoso classical piano, then it's sort of like people would assume that you'd be able to come up to like a jazz piano level like more quickly than you probably could because mm-hmm. you like had a good ability. You in had like this one background, level. right? And just mm-hmm switch your hat and then you play jazz yeah so they're they're quite different and um yeah yeah it's good fun though because jazz is that's a lot more improvisational Mm. is it and Mm. you know you get in the rhythm and yeah totally you're going with it yeah yeah Yeah. um and and but it's through that year that i was also then working part-time at magnum mac and um then sometime through that year it was the year before the iphone came out so it's 2007 when the iphone came out june and then 2008 would have been the years at jazz school. And um, by the way, I love how you know that it was June 2007. It's, it's like kind of like the markers. It's a moment in life, it, huh? It absolutely <laughs> is. Like there's these markers of. Uh, yeah. I, I think I think the iPhone, um, without trying to be a fanboy about it, but you know, is just a pivotal moment in computing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the point that we had a modern desktop operating system running on a device that you could take around anywhere with you. Mm. It's just, um, I don't know that we're actually going to have another moment like that with anything ever again. I feel like in terms of how those things played out and, you know, the, the, what enabled that and made that happen was like a kind of, you know, possibly a once in a lifetime Mm. sort of exercise. So that's, is a very, it's worth remembering. It's very much worth remembering. Absolutely. (laughs) No, that's good. Yeah. So, so that that comes out. You're working at Magnum Mac, and and then yeah, what happened? Then you started developing apps, or saw that as an opportunity, or what? so. So I think um, a friend of mine who had been a friend since uh, since high school, Toby, Toby Vincent, mm-hmm. and um, and I had both ended up getting iPhones, uh, and they're sort of like on the black market at that stage. So at that point, you had to buy them from America, and the way they actually worked, funnily enough, is they were they were really really cheap to buy that year because you. Basically, the way that Apple had set them up is you'd pay two hundred US dollars to go and get an iPhone, but you'd have to have it on a contract. And so you'd plug it into your computer, and then when you plugged it into your computer, you'd set up the contract with AT and T, which was their launch partner. Right. And so what would happen though is people would basically go and buy them for two hundred dollars, and then do a thing called jailbreaking, which stopped them from being able to be used with um, AT and T, and made it so you can use it with a different carrier. Mm. So basically, you could go and get an iPhone for you know US dollars, I think two times or so it's like a four or five hundred dollars for like the iphone mm-hmm. and so you could go and get one put it on a different network and so it was actually a very cheap phone to have as a jailbroken phone compared to like having a you know mm-hmm. a good nokia or something at the time mm-hmm. and so toby and i ended up both having iphones and we both just loved them and loved the kinds of things you could do with them and the whole concept of having a desktop operating system running on a mm-hmm. on a mobile device and um and so we're just talking and playing with ideas. And so then when Apple announced that you could build apps for the iPhone, yeah. um, Toby and I naturally just started playing around with some ideas like, hey, we could make this, we could make this. Mm-hmm. And there was, it's was really interesting because there are people who are like really com- with computer backgrounds and have been in, working in the computer industry for 10, 15 years or mm. however, however long. And they kind of came with like this whole, well, now there's a desktop operating system. We can put desktop apps on these phones and like do that stuff. Right. And that's what's happening now, but it's taken ten years for everyone to get like into that sort of space and 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 work out that that's that's what um you know you can do with these devices. Whereas Toby and I were like, actually, all people are going to want because everyone on their Nokia's they want to play like some fun games and like mm. have fun stuff to show <laughs> off with their friends and be like, hey, look at this cool new iPhone I've got, and you can do the stuff with it. Yeah. And so we just basically came up with like a whole bunch of different ideas and we're like, hey, what if we make this and what if we make this? And so they're all variations of mm-hmm. the same kinds of stuff. But like, you know, our rule was pretty much if we couldn't make it within a day or two, then we would, um, you know, we wouldn't do it. So we like would throw about throw around a whole bunch of ideas and come up with some different ones and be like, okay, if we can do this. And so... And the amazing thing is that you're at the start of a new, an, almost a new industry, aren't you? Mm, absolutely. At that, at that point. Totally. It, apps, you know, it, it just didn't exist yeah. If you went back a couple of years. Yeah. 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 So you're, you you have to, in a way, you're 
kind of making the rules of mm. what it is mm. that you can do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember what some of the first ones were that you did? Like, Well, we did sort of seasonal sort of stuff at the very beginning. So I remember it was... Um, you know, just before Halloween. So we did this Halloween app that just like you could set up and plug in some speakers at your house and mm. it would like play sort of, you know, Halloween sorts of things. So we thought, the reason why we thought of that is we saw how in America, the um, and remember the iPhone hadn't launched in other countries at this point. So we're thinking, hey, what's stuff going to be really popular in America? Oh, actually, sorry. Mm. iPhone 3G just launched, but we're talking like in New Zealand, there were like 5,000 devices total. Right? right. So we weren't targeting these markets. Yeah. Um, and so we're looking at America like what sort of stuff would be really interesting and people you know go and buy all like the Halloween stuff and like decorate their houses yeah, and that sort yeah. of stuff so I thought it would be cool if someone can buy something a little small app that they can plug in um, and, and use to make sounds for like their house so yeah and then funnily enough a lot of those first apps were very sound based so we did things that actually did things with sounds which was something that I mm, had a bit of knowledge around kind of resonates from. with your music background huh? yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. And when you were first doing it, like, um, it, I guess, did you know how successful you were? You could check the downloads and yeah, know, yeah. like, which ones were better than others and that type of thing. And that helped you refine yeah, so your target markets. And the, there's exactly that. So the, the, um, the results would use, so basically they'd rep- publish the reports from each day in terms of like the download numbers. Okay. And so every day, it was probably around like midnight New Zealand, we'd actually just stay up and work until the results came out and right. then we'd wait until the results came out and see how we did and then and then call it a night then. I so see. sometimes they'd be like delayed and it'd take to like one or two o'clock. You'd be like, what are they going to be today? It was like, how much, <laughs> you know, how many downloads have we got from this thing and how much, how much uh, revenues it brought in? So um, yeah, it was good. It was good fun. Yeah. So the model was um, people are downloading the app and and then some funds come back to you as the as the originator. And yeah, um, what sort of numbers in terms of downloads at that point were they like? What would get you excited at one (laughs) a.m.? I think at the very beginning, uh, you know, it would have been like a couple hundred. You'd be like a couple hundred people went and got this, and Mm. um, a couple hundred people went and went and got this thing. Uh, And then, but some of the ones we did. So there's this one. That we actually did ended up doing as a joke. We're like, this thing's not going to go anywhere. This is right. just stupid. And it was called Sound Grenade. And it was just, we're like, what if we just make something that's going to be really like the most. Oh, and it's, one of the things we actually would do is like, there's this top chart. So there's like a top 100 apps on the App Store. And so we'd just look through that. Right. And so, like, of those top 100 apps, would be like, oh, what are the things that are sort of trending? What's going on? What are people downloading? Mm. And there are a couple at the time that were trending for a few different reasons, getting some stories written. One was around dog whistles. And the other was around um, like uh, annoy, like 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 pester kids or something. Like it was like a sound thing because high pitch frequencies that you know as people get older their ears mm. aren't able to hear the same way. And so we came up with this idea like and literally made it in like about twenty minutes mm. called Sound Grenade, and it was just a really high pitched annoying sound that you could press a right. button on, and then it would just go and play and. Um, and because so really, we just, you're adding value to humanity here. Absolutely. <laughs> so much value. Yeah. So much. Um, that was a popular one, huh? So so that one, we just thought, this isn't going to go anywhere. We're just going to put it up for free and see what happens. Uh-huh. And that actually climbed and became the number one app in the US. Wow. And so that had, I think on its peak day, it had like 200,000 downloads. Gosh. And so, um, and so that over time probably had five or six million downloads of just people naturally going and finding it and searching it and yeah. and so then we spent a little bit more time and built some new things and um rather than doing like a paid app with it we actually apple had just brought out this new feature called in-app purchases so we made mm. this in-app purchase for it where you could just basically buy different sounds and it was just the same sort of stuff but some different sounds and we kind of set up like a price tier so there's like you know you could buy individual ones for like a dollar and then like a pack of some for like two dollars and then another pack for like five dollars yeah and it's like the five dollar one was the most value and so like 80 percent of people bought the five dollar pack i see and so then that generated a reasonable reasonable amount of revenue yeah and at what point did you realize you know you're working together with your friend you're staying up to 1 a.m writing these apps and things at what point did you realize actually this is a business or or had you known that quite early on um i think the point that i realized it was so still working at magna mac part-time because toby was studying at university Mm -hmm. and so i was working at magna mac and um they had been bought by another company and so the job that i was doing i said well can you come up to auckland and do this job and i was actually just doing it because i liked the company and i um was happy to keep working there it's been your childhood um place right (laughs) exactly i'd I'd grown up like i'd worked their school holidays and worked in the sales department the service department so i was happy working there and and like the people um and still you know 
keep in touch with quite a few of the people yep. people that were that were there. And um, so then the the new management came in, and I remember the guy. He came in and had like a meeting with me. He's like, "Well, we want to move to Auckland. We want to pay you this much to come do this job." And he thought it was like a big number that he was offering me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "I'm making more than that doing these apps. I'm doing like on the right. side. They're just like these farm sounds and these other things." So yeah. I was like, "Well, I'm not. I'm hardly, and I'm having way more fun as well. Like I'm having fun doing this, and I'm making money doing it. So right. um, it wasn't that it was so much as a business." Um, but that was like one mo- moment there. And then the yeah. second moment I think would be um, when... So inside, because he's he's offering you this amazing opportunity to mm. come to the big city yeah. and we're going to pay you a lot more and yeah. you're going to have this new job. Yeah. And inside, you're just kind of smiling, thinking, well, actually... Th- funnily enough, I was just on a casual contract as well. Right. So I just I actually just walked out that day and I was, I was just done. Like if that's the value that I'm going to be adding, then I'm, I don't really need to, I don't need to yeah. be here. Like I'm not, um, I wasn't on a I permanent just, contract. Yeah. Or, it was more of a hobby for me, right? Yeah. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, it's good. Yeah, and then the second, you said there was a second thing. And so the second one was, so after we'd done, I think it was about after we'd done sound grain, we'd done, a, oh, there's kind of a moment, I don't remember the exact time or day, but, um, there's kind of the second moment where we've been building all these different apps mm. and we probably built about 50 different ones and we yeah. didn't know which was going to be popular or what was going to um, be successful or not. And in working out what actually was going to be successful, um, we realized that what we actually enjoyed wasn't so much about the success of the app, but the fact that people enjoyed using it and right. like coming along and actually being part of what we'd made. Mm. And so in that, what we actually found was basically building apps for the app store was like going and playing um, playing lotto. Like mm-hmm. you just, you can do things and you're like the things that we thought would do well, like you, mm-hmm. you couldn't predict what was actually going to do well yeah, um, and what was going to resonate with people and what wasn't. Yeah. And there's something that's very like demotivating about like stabbing in the dark and going and like just, yeah. <laughs> and just being like, hey, is this going to hit? Is this going to hit? And, but the thing that we did really enjoy is making stuff that people loved and like to use. Right. And so we thought, well, what are the apps that we'd really like to use ourselves? And we thought it'd be really cool to have an app from Vodafone to do your my account. It'd be really cool to have an app from like to be able to go and see what movies are on. It'd be really cool to have an app um, for going and finding out places that are around you, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And so we actually went and approached Vodafone and said, "Hey, can we go and make a my account app for you?" Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have been that would have been at a late to like oh uh, like early two thousand nine somewhere around there. Mm. And um, and at the time, I think again, there's probably like five to ten thousand phones because I know which how many phones are on the network, and so they had a report and was like, hey, this is how many iPhones. And so I kind of like looked at us a little bit and were like, well, iPhones probably not going to go go anywhere. The people that we're talking to, and um, sure, like if you want to make an app, and we and we've done a prototype already using some things and like built up a bit of something that we went and took and demoed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, well, sure, look, and and the amount of money we were talking about was was like nothing to. You know, it was it was like the cost of a project manager on a normal project. Right. And we're like, hey, look, it's going to cost this much, and we thought it was a big number, but it was yeah, it's like what you typically have is probably a project manager cost. Yeah. Um. And and good, good like I said, the good thing about not having enough knowledge and about good thing about being mm-hmm. naive that you don't know what is right. like good to go and try and do. Which or, we started the conversation with yep. exactly. <laughs> so I think there's a theme that definitely uh, yeah, has definitely rung true, um, for quite a bit of quite a bit of time. Um, and, and I think that's probably one of the good things about, you know, I talked a little bit as well about not knowing what I'm going to do next. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably one of the things about doing that. If you know exactly what you're going to do next, um, you're probably going to be a bit more nervous or a bit more worried or scared about some of the things. Cause he's like, really, should I go and do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, so we're going to approach Vodafone and said, can we build this app? And they said, sure, we'll do this app with you. And it's more like a marketing kind of side. So we ended up then spending, um, three or four years doing a whole lot of consumer apps for like we work for stuff.co.nz and for um yeah, for vodafone uh sky tv we did their mm-hmm. like programming guide we could re- remote record on the sky tv boxes so basically mm-hmm. if you're out and you've forgotten to record the rugby or something you could just or the news or whatever you wanted you could just open it up on the epg mm-hmm. press a button and record it on your my sky box at home mm-hmm. sounds really kind of weird 
talking about some of that stuff now when streaming video now is so predominant. Right. Because you kind of have to like put your head back into the space and think that was cool at the time. But isn't that like, part of the fascination of this whole sector is that, you know, we're only talking like five years ago or yeah. whatever and already things have moved on so quickly. Totally. Right? Like it's, totally. It's, it's happened so so fast. Yeah. So, you're, so you start with the app store and doing um, grenade sounds and, yeah. and things and then you move into sort of um, things that you thought would be helpful and, yeah. and useful. What are some of the things that you've moved on to now? Because I'd love to hear more about what you're doing today. Um, and in particular, I think there's the app for the police, right, that, mm. that you've been involved in. Um, can you just bring us up to date in terms of what, what the company's up to now? Yeah, definitely. So I think the one of the learnings that we had from doing the consumer apps, and one of the things I think that was quite different about our thinking was because we had that background of doing the app store apps. Mm. You know, our way of coming in and thinking about what design was on that space was, you know, people just have to be able to pick it up and use it, and you don't have to go and read a manual, don't have to go and pick up and work out how to do things. And so because we then had built this relationship with Vodafone, um, they said hey, why don't you come talk to some of our enterprise customers about some of the work you've been doing in this consumer space. You know, people are interested in looking at how they can use iPhones to help them in their business and work mm-hmm. through some of those kinds of processes. And so as part of that partnership with Vodafone, um, police had, uh, like New Zealand police had uh, done a contract with Vodafone to look at how they can, well, not to look at, but basically to help make their officers more street than station. Mm-hmm. So basically making sure that police officers had the tools that they could use to be working in the field rather than going back to the station having to go back and use a computer and be able to get the details from there right and as part of that Vodafone said oh you know with your skills that you've got and doing this kind of work you know do to come and be involved in the team and helping come and shape what that looks like and and how we could do that and so we went and um so one of the things other things about doing consumer apps is because you're a consumer yourself, you understand all of the problems that people have. So like, for example, wanting to have access to um, a Vodafone My Account app, it was like a problem that we had. You're like, hey, I want to be able to go and see what my balance is and be able to see and like be able to top it up and like pay my bill, all that kind of stuff, right? So you've got first-hand knowledge. But then when we were doing enterprise software, one of the problems is you don't have that knowledge because you're like, well, I don't know what it's like to be a cop. Mm-hmm. Like the first thing when I thought of doing working for the police was, oh, okay, police is road policing, right? Because like mm. whenever I see a police car on the road, I just think, okay, that's someone from road. I didn't even know yeah, that that's term what at the they're time. doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you realise that actually, not even half of the police are in road policing, right. and there's more people in general duties that are responding to other kinds of incidents. Mm. But if you're not familiar with what a role actually does or what what people do in that job, it's like you don't have that mm. knowledge, right? Mm. As opposed to if you've had a speeding ticket or it's something, you're like, oh, okay, well, I, I have an understanding of what the police do in that space. Um, and so for probably about um, four or five months, there was a team of people which I was included in that, um, that did quite a lot of research around what police do and the kinds of activities that they you know, mm-hmm. do day to day. And that involved spending quite a lot of time um, sitting in police cars and mm-hmm. spending time going to different jobs and understanding the kinds of tasks mm-hmm. that they did. So you're looking for pain points rather than vitamins that you can give the police like you're actually experiencing a little bit of their world absolutely before you yeah design something absolutely yeah and i think as well not just experiencing their world Mm -hmm. but experiencing what it is like to have attended 500 family harm incidents or have gone and given you know 10,000 tickets right because like that thinking is very different like you Mm -hmm. the culture of what it's like to you know almost have to assume that people like you don't know whether someone's telling you the truth or not telling you the truth right Mm. and like that's one of those things that comes with the job and so if you once you've been doing that kind of role for three four years like it changes the way that you think and i think having that understanding of how people think in terms of having done a job for a long time Mm -hmm. is really important as well so it's not just about what the processes are and how you're going to do them but actually what the culture is that you bring to that job that you do Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that's almost just as important as the actual processes that you do right because you think about what you know giving a ticket means and so just to probably um like say the then the infringement notices Mm. um actually jumping back one step so through that i kind of had this picture of you know, being able to use phones to be able to, and, and everyone did as well. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the unique person that was the only person that saw this. This was the whole strategy around police were trying to do. Mm. But I sort of had details because we'd had a lot of experience of building mobile software of how we could actually implement that and what sorts of things we could do. Mm. And so, police have these kind of like core elements that they look at doing. So, involve people and locations and vehicles, and they look them up and then transact on them for one of a better word. Mm. 
And so we really built this concept around being able to query people and vehicles and locations and be able to take actions with them and create paperwork out of it. And so the first one that we ended up doing was infringement notices, mainly because they had a fleet of 4,000 old devices that were needed to be moved on because if they needed to replace them and the batteries are starting to run out and they're starting to get a bit dated, um, they physically wouldn't work. And the replacement cost them was a lot more than the replacement cost of an iPhone. Mm. So it was like that was the easy target from a business case to, to pick first. And so we built this um, application with police and their, their team there around infringement notices and how to how to make them work really well on an iPhone. Mm. And there's some cool little features that we built in around making sure that accuracy is really important. So they went from um, like from an accuracy perspective. If you had a uh, infringement notice that had like a detail wrong, so someone accidentally transposes a number or a date, then you can go and challenge them and say, "Hey, well, that wasn't you know that wasn't me, right? Mm. Or that was that's not my vehicle registration. That's not a um, that doesn't relate to me. That was someone else." Or Mm-hmm. And so they actually had, I think when they, the measurement was like it was a 65% accuracy from like the handwritten paper to actually going and making infringement notice, notices out of them. And through the process of then going and creating a digital version of it that worked worked really well, um, you know, got that to up to 100% because there's little things we can do. Like, for example, when you go and put in an alleged speed, if you say, hey, we're, um, we think you're doing 65 and a 50 we then actually make you put in the difference as well. So if I'm a cop and I'm using the application, I'd have to say, well, the difference of the speed you're traveling was 15. Mm-hmm. So then if you go to the judge and say, hey, well, he typed it in wrong, and you go, well, he had to type in the 65 wrong, and then he had to manually do the maths in his head and mm-hmm. type in the 15, it's mm-hmm. probably relatively unlikely that the police officer you talk to um, was wrong twice. got that yeah. got that wrong twice <laughs> in that particular. And so it's funny when you think about making a process really fast and easy, there's times when like the information is really important that we then slow it down mm-hmm. um but what was really cool and i actually had a um speeding ticket a couple of months after this right. um, came out because <laughs> I, I was driving in a part of part of the north island that i didn't know that well and i went you know went from 100 to like an 80 or something i was yeah. still just going along at 100 you know so i got pulled over and got a um got a ticket but what and i did a ticket you know months before the one had come out i, was, I don't get that many tickets i've had like two yeah right <laughs> it's not a, well you were testing it right <laughs> definitely, definitely was not intentional you have to you know pay your ticket and it doesn't the law is the law yeah and um and and so I got the ticket, but what was really cool was the process that we designed and talked about, and like all these things and the benefits was, mm. you know, you're going to have a conversation about, um, you know, your behaviour and like what that means and all that sort of stuff. And the ticket then is just like the process that goes away. And it's not a long process writing out that. That was exactly what I then experienced when I actually had a ticket yeah. myself, where you know the cop that pulled me up and has no idea that obviously that you know we worked or contributed to this particular yeah. tool, right? Because yeah. You know, over ten thousand cops. They don't. Yeah, yeah. Don't, you don't didn't know. meet every single cop. No. <laughs> and um, yeah. But like, actually, then having that experience of going, well, that experience that we designed was the experience that then people mm-hmm. were using. Where he came and talked to me and had a conversation about the behaviour and like, mm-hmm. you know, what it meant. And then the ticket process was actually really simple and really easy right. and didn't take much time. And so the point with that particular tool wasn't necessarily that it was going to speed up the process so that they could do more of them. It speed up the process so that when people go on, can go and have a conversation about the behaviour, mm-hmm. and so then you can actually do I that see. and talk about that part. And so that was, um, yeah, which really is about empowering the the police officer to then, um, you know, have a real engagement with a person yeah. that will hopefully change their behaviour in the future, yeah. right? Yeah. And at the end of that conversation, were you tempted to say, "Did you enjoy that app? Was it good?" I think <laughs> I think um, when I've talked, I, I definitely uh, when when it the opportunity comes up, talk to people about how they find the application. But I yeah. can't remember if I did on that particular occasion or not. Yeah. I've had so many interactions with, yeah. Yeah, I'm that, sure. That I'm yeah. not, I can't remember So exactly. I'd love to, can you briefly summarize the other app that you did, um, which has gotten a bit of publicity more recently? Um, and then I'd love to go in a slightly different angle, just talking about technology and yeah, sure. the workforce and things. Yeah. So we actually... Um, the, the main application that we've done with police is actually just one application. It's mm-hmm. called On Duty, and because it's centered around people, vehicle locations, um, we actually use that as the kind of template for going and doing any kind of police reporting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, police have been looking at how they can respond to domestic violence mm-hmm. incidents differently to the way that they have up to that point. And there's a you know mm-hmm. there's a multi-year project that involves mm-hmm. a range of different people from different agencies that are you know collaborate on these particular areas and so there's an opportunity to be able to use some of that technology that we've developed for 
people and vehicles and locations and be able to look into the intelligence application that police have and use that information to mm. um, respond to family harm in a different way. And so looking and doing a little bit of study around that, again, with a part of a team, like, you know, I don't want to ever, don't want to ever make it sound like you know, we've contributed to this team. We're definitely not the... Um, you know, a yeah, part of a I much understand. wider team, yeah. right? Like, yeah. And but part of the research that we've done as part of that team has been uh, looking at you know um, how we could use this tool to to mm. respond. And so some of the things that we came up with there were um, one of the tools that's used. Well, jumping back a step, they used to have this eleven-page document. Mm-hmm. There's like a triplicate. What do you what do you call it when you have like a Carbon, a carbon copy. That's it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you've got a carbon copy and triplicate, eleven-page mm. document that sure. you turn up, and there's a. So every incident, they're having to fill this thing in. Yeah. And so yeah. there's 121,000 a year. Right. Over the last couple of years. Yeah. And so that's it's a lot of pages. <laughs> it's like a, it's, it's, I think it's a million and a half pieces of paper right. each year. And so, but you you think about though, in terms of you being like getting over the radio, being dispatched to a particular job, and you think, oh, there's another domestic violence, and then I've got to do all this paperwork for it. I see. And not only that, but you couldn't necessarily do all the paperwork at the scene because you wouldn't necessarily have all the information and have it right. So you might have to go back to the police station, go and access some of the computers and get mm. more information, previous history around it, and go and collate that together. So you get to end your shift and you might, if you've been to two or three, you could end up with quite a lot of paperwork that you actually had to go and do and finish to finish your job, which is, is frustrating, right? Yeah. And so it creates a bit of negativity around that actual process and around how, how it worked. So... The process that she did in terms of changing from um, looking at how they respond to these kinds of incidents uh, was all-encompassing. So they changed the name from they, – they have these codes um, like – so if you go to something that's like an incident, or mm. it, it will be start with like a 1. Right. And so it will be saying you'd um, – so it used to be like a 1D. And then uh, there's an investigative code which starts with a 5. And so this is like when you're talking on the radio, it's really easy to be able to say, hey, you know, there's a um, – like a traffic crash and be like the code for a traffic crash. So it's like they changed the code from 1D to a 5F and changed the name from domestic violence to family harm. So it's all encompassing of mm. harm that can happen within that family environment. So it can include mental abuse and as right. well as physical abuse. Yep. And so um, as part of that, there's like some risk assessment kinds of things that were in the original questions. And that had originally been copied from a Canadian model. So it was a DARA test that they'd use, which was this Canadian model. And so there's a team of people in New Zealand who came up with some new ones that were relevant for New Zealand. Mm. And so there are kinds of questions there. And we built this feature in the app where um, as a cop, you can go and hand your phone over and it'll lock it down to the victim and they can actually just answer the questions on the phone themselves. Okay. So they can just tap through and say, hey, um, has your partner threatened this or have they tried to withhold money or have they tried to do these kinds of things? And so you can actually just sit there. And so if you're in a small apartment, I can just give you the phone and right. I can just tap through and go through the questions and answer them. If I've been doing this for five years and I know the questions so well, I might just be able to have a conversation with you and ask these questions in the general conversation. Then I can go back. I don't have to do that process mm-hmm. that way. I can actually go back and just say, okay, well, you know, I know the answer to that because when I was talking to them, they already told me these things. right? Yes, yes. And so there's a real balance there of not trying to force a process on someone, mm-hmm. but actually being able to have the opportunity to, work out how you do the process yourself and how to work out how to get the best outcome, mm-hmm. which is really trying to get the information from someone to help make an assessment around, um, hey, do we need, how much support do we need to put in here and help these people to mm-hmm. get to a better place than they are in currently? Yeah, it makes sense. And so, and then you're reducing the volume of paper as well, right? From a million and a half pages or whatever, yeah. because now it's all being processed yeah. um, using this technology yeah but not even just the volume of paper just the amount of time yeah um uh as a cop recently was telling a story who said you know he used to like not know that how long it would take him to finish uh his shift because he'd have all this paperwork to fill out right and after the actual um after being able to use the app because he could complete all the paperwork at the time he would know how long a shift would take to finish because he'd already have done the work that he needed to do right yep and um obviously if they're not spending time filling in these forms and doing other things if they've been more efficient then there's freeing up time to be concentrating on other areas or you know um, getting involved in other activities right that's the idea yeah so let's go a different way it seems to me like um, even if we trace back to the early origins of what you've been doing um, that part of it has been about making things better you know 
or providing tools, if we like, you know, the mm. hammers yeah. to, to, to actually get something done that's productive mm. or useful. Um, can you just talk us through, I guess, the philosophy underlying what you're actually doing and, and how that resonates now with the things that you're developing? Mm. I think personally there's always been a fascination of helping build and create tools and processes that can help people do something in a better and more efficient way than they've done before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, though, one thing that I feel like is a little bit different about the way that we think about that, though, is that we kind of still view the world as always going to be imperfect because we've got humans interacting with other humans and we've got natural disasters that happen and like we've got so you know, experiences within Christchurch. And so there's all these things you can't predict and can't plan for. But we can still try and create better processes and better ways of doing things within that and sort of planning for that imperfection and planning for mm-hmm. how that's going to work and including that imperfection in the design. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that comes back to like that, as we talked about with the music, right? Like that mm. theoretical version of it versus the practical side. It's like the theoretical one, you can design like a perfect system and like, you know, if, if we didn't have any of these variables happening, right. it's like going to work really nicely every time. But the practical version is, well, actually in this part, we have all these other things going on that we don't necessarily understand or can't comprehend at the same time, whether they're conscious or unconscious, but we can still try and create tools that actually help you get to a better place and, and use them in a better way. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. It's fascinating to think about the future, isn't it? You know, Mm. like we've already described, like, you know, 10 years, isn't that long, but how much has changed in the 10 years, I guess, just um, having been part of that journey right from the beginning, developing some of the first apps, you know, that were released um, where do you think we're heading, you know, looking at the future? Um, and you take that whichever way you want to in terms of work or, you know, what is it that people are going to be needing um, over the next 10 years, say? Um, there's still a lot of frustrations within the way that we do work. One particular one that I have, funnily enough, is probably related to a legal sort of one which is where the law doesn't necessarily always match up particularly well with the speed and and the way that we you know work Mm -hmm. or approach and do things Mm -hmm. where you you might have a contract which might be five or six pages long that will go and reference you know all these different parts of the law and historical things that have been there to go and try and solve a problem which might be um you know like say it's an nda where you need to say have a non-disclosure agreement you say this is and it's kind of the intention is to say, hey, look, here's an agreement that these are the things we're not going to do together, right? And it's like you could almost write the intention of it as two or three sentences, mm-hmm. but yet because of the history and the way that the laws developed, it's like you end up having this quite long mm-hmm. document. And I think that creates a lot of friction around the way that people work and the way that people end up you know, having to do different things together. Mm-hmm. And I think I would personally like to see... I'm not trying to solve the world here, right? Like I think there's an imperfect world, but there's there's something for me about like the future of work where we're able to live in a more intention-based focus where it's like, hey, rather than trying to meet the legalistic interpretation of everything that we do, it's like how do we get to the intention of what we're trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. And the legal part is there to like hold and stop like, you know, the the negative consequences of bad, bad actors, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to like actually assuming, hey, most people are good actors, and you know we're achieving well above what the like the legal version is, but there's there's like there's a tendency to I know I'm getting very very abstract here, but there's a tendency to like to you know go back to like the legalistic definition of what you do and do like the absolute minimum yeah. in like a work sort of setting or workspace. And I think there's a yeah there's an interesting like balance between mm, between both. Things. Well, as you know, um, my job is as a lawyer, so mm. I've been doing that for quite a long time yeah. now. And it, it is a fascinating area because there is almost like an encrusted growth of things over time mm. that contracts, you know, we call them boilerplates, you know, and it's basically a page or two at the end, mm. which says, you know, there's no waiver, severance, jurisdiction, disputes, notices, like there's some standard things that yeah. we would, if we, if I see a contract and it doesn't have those things, I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. They mm. don't but um, what you're talking about, I think, is the intention between two parties mm. to work together mm. <laughs> and to collaborate. Mm. Um, it gets, um, I guess what you're saying is it gets frustrated in a way by the, the legalese or the, the documentation. Do you think, um, you know, with blockchain and the sort of um, contracts or understandings on a network, do you think that's going to be changing? No. 
No? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> Take I, me there, Woody. I think one of the problems for me with, with blockchain style technologies for personal use mm-hmm. is that the number of people... Have you ever lost a password? Or forgotten a password for yeah, something. Yeah, and like, that's well, we could go on about this. That's one of my bugbears <laughs> yeah. is how many passwords I've got. Right, every single thing. Yeah. Um, and and so so there's kind of like this. Um, to me, blockchain in a theoretical world mm-hmm. is really great, but in a practical world, not so great. Right. So, I I had actually had this theory that with blockchain, as soon as people knew that you had a significant amount of, uh, you know assets or resources like in a particular set of technologies mm. that then you'd be a target to go and like someone could come and attack you and say hey actually i want to come and try and get your private key that i can go and use and go and use your resources right because as soon as i have your private key mm. i'm you mm-hmm. right there's no extra validation right yeah and then funnily enough i was sitting in the police office just this week mm. and i was flicking through a magazine and it had an article on blockchain and it actually talked about three or four cases where people had been held up and robbed to get their private key right. to go and steal their their, their resources, cryptocurrency that were. or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so I think, as a personal technology, just for me, the fact that so many people lose passwords, and passwords are often like eight to ten to twelve characters, mm. and then you go, okay, I've got a blockchain private key that lets me access and say that I'm who I am for these things, mm-hmm. and those two things like don't match up for me yet. So until mm-hmm. someone solves the problem of going and validating this is who I am, mm-hmm. that's not just a key that I have ac- happen to have access to. Mm-hmm. I think as a personal use thing, it becomes quite like quite hairy very quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, from a like commercial side, then I think we already have like those tools and technologies that do that. And so, but as soon as you start saying, okay, well, it's not distributed now mm-hmm. because someone else to be, needs to be a gatekeeper to prove that these people are who they, they are, or someone's going to look after a key for you. Then we just have banks again, which is a contract between you and another organization which says this is what we're going to do and look after these resources for years. Right. So, um, yeah, I I'm can't put me in the skeptical camp of, of, uh, of, like, of how to make that work in the real world for a mass number of people. Right, yeah. Oh, that's interesting because I think over the last year, you know, this is how quickly things change, isn't it? Like we're recording this um, – September 2018 and even a year ago like cryptocurrency wasn't quite on the radar in a national scale you know but then it became and it it became the buzzword it felt like every conference was something about um blockchain (laughs) I, I think it's the same with um everyone's always looking for the next technology like the next big thing that's going to change change what things are and have like that step change and I think yeah um it can feel like we're going to get to that place, but I'm still like same with VR and AR kinds of technologies. Mm-hmm. AR a little bit more, but like say VR, you know, I don't see them as being mass market kinds of things that people are going to be able to go and use in a particular way. I think, you know, the thing I still love about a phone kind of technology is the fact that you can carry around a computer that can go with you wherever you are. It's got a great camera. It can connect to a network and go and you know, be able to send and receive data at ridiculous speeds. Yeah, and it does it in a way that like the battery lasts for a significant amount of time um there's nothing else that really kind of comes close to that is like something that you is that portable and that useful mm. um for me mm. and so uh, yeah oh we'll, we'll see we'll see what yeah <laughs> like see what happens yeah we will well that's that's the fascinating part isn't it mm. um seeing where things go and who you know 20 years ago you wouldn't have known what we would be having available right now mm. Ruben, if people are interested in connecting with you and finding out more about Smudge and what it, what what's happening, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Is website the best? Yeah, I think um, our website, and you can you know send me a note and um, anything currently that actually goes through a website just comes to me. So okay, I see everything that comes through there. Yeah. Okay. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, um, we'll put in some links, and then if people are interested, they can scroll down and and click through. Um, uh, and maybe just to finish off, just Canterbury itself as a tech region or a tech sector, um, what's your impression of, I guess, the ecosystem here? I would say to, like, it's always hard to answer something that you're in. Mm. So it's kind of like your impression from, like, the inside. Yeah, you're in the fishbowl. <laughs> in the fishbowl. So it's like it's yeah. hard to, like, know in some ways, like, wh- how it compares to other I mean, other places or, yeah. or where they fit. So I don't, I don't really have that much of a comment. Mm. <laughs> No, that's okay. No worries. Um, yeah, well, it's been great to have a chat with you. I've really loved hearing a bit about your history, like before you 
started doing what you do now. And even just with the music, you know, I love that idea of um, the concepts we talked about there about how if you're pretty good, you can fake it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But ultimately, you probably know that you um, aren't going to convince the uh, the real judge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the principles there, it was kind of fun to draw the picture back with business as well, mm-hmm. that sometimes it's actually better not to know what you don't know mm-hmm. and just to get on with it. And, yep. you know, your grenade app, you know, that had five or six million downloads or whatever, like, you know, you probably didn't know what, <laughs> that it would be that successful no, that you just not. put it out so yeah. Um, yeah I just want to say thanks very much for coming on the podcast and um, yeah it was great hearing your story and a little bit about what you're up to now awesome thank you for having me well I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ruben I know I really appreciated hearing his perspective and particularly just realizing that 10 years ago is not that long and yet so much has changed you know the way he talked about the app store and the way he talked about developing some of those very first apps. I found it was fascinating. And then I loved hearing his perspective about music as well. If you enjoyed this interview, then you might want to check out some of the dozens of other interviews that have been recorded, because this is the 59th episode, and many of those earlier ones also have a tech focus. And if you hit subscribe, that's the best way to ensure you won't miss out on future upcoming episodes. Until next time. (music) 